Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Frontiers in Diabetic Macular Edema, Addressing Health Disparities and Other Barriers to Optimal Outcomes is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Diabetic macular edema and diabetic retinopathy are the two most common visual complications of diabetes. And diabetic retinopathy is the leading cause of vision loss among working age adults. We know that screening works and we have effective treatments. So why do we continue to see high rates of vision loss? This is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Vivian Fonseca. And joining me for today's discussion is Dr. Rishi Singh from Cleveland. Thank you for having me, Vivian. So first, we know that the prevalence of diabetes is higher among minority populations like Native Americans, Hispanics, and African Americans, and those with lower socioeconomic status. Do the rates of diabetic eye disease follow similar trends? Vivian, there's been multiple studies that really evaluated racial and socioeconomic relationships with diabetic retinopathy. The National Health and Nutritional Evaluation Survey data was probably the strongest data that shows vision-threatening diabetic retinopathy is 190% higher in non-Hispanic Black individuals versus non-Hispanic white individuals. And certainly the social determinants of health and glycemic control can influence the progression of retinopathy. We're very aware that many of our inner cities, for example, are food deserts where there's lack of nutritional uh, ability for patients to get the right nutrition to control their diabetes. And instead, they're left with options which are high glycemic and index and unfortunately can cause progression and worsening of diabetic retinopathy. In addition, we know that the anti-VEGF therapy or vascular endothelial growth factor therapy that we have now available for us to use in practice as ophthalmologists is applied differentially to these populations. And so this data has ultimately showed that those patients, especially, first of all, in those racial and socioeconomic situations, can unfortunately suffer the consequences of diabetic retinopathy at a much greater rate, first from A, having the higher prevalence, but B, also having the lack of treatment options and conditions for these patients. And of course, these lead to poor outcomes. And these social determinants of health is something we see a lot in practice And it's very challenging for many of these patients. They face many barriers to care, lack of health insurance, the cost of care, taking time off from work, lack of reliable transportation to come to multiple appointments. So for example, if a patient has taken the trouble to come to me and I advise an eye exam and eye visit, they've got to come again. And those are very challenging. How do these barriers specifically affect the vision of patients with diabetes? Well, Vivian, we had the chance of evaluating patients through the IRIS database, and this stands for Intelligent Research Insight. And it's the nation's first comprehensive eye disease clinical registry with its academy members, ophthalmologists, contributing data to it each and every day. And they've assembled data for millions of patients now where you can ask and answer questions related to both the most commonest diseases and also to the most rarest conditions. And what the data has shown is that in a very compelling fashion is first and foremost, those patients who are black come in with worse vision on entry than those patients who are white. And in fact, Hispanic patients or Latino patients come in 
far worse, almost 10 letters worse than those patients who are non-Hispanic and non-Latinos. And when you look at these patients through this IRIS survey, and we've published our recent literature in the Journal of Ophthalmology just a few months ago with the primary author of Nisha Malotra, who was my star medical student, what we found essentially is we found stratifications by not only racial stratifications on presentation, but also by insurance stratifications. Those with private insurance came in with the best visual acuity on entry. Those with Medicare came in with a slightly worse visual acuity by about five letters of vision. And those with Medicaid populations came in with 10 letters less of vision. Now, letters of vision is letters on the eye chart. And I think it's an important thing to remember because it's the difference between driving and not driving potentially. 2040 vision versus 2050 vision is a line of vision. And that could mean the difference in driving, not driving. And that further compounds the social determinants of health if you have the lack of independence, lack of ability to drive, the reliance on others for the ability to go to healthcare appointments. And the additional piece that we found was when you look at these patients over a five-year period, despite the fact that they get injections for this treatment with these anti-vascular endothelial growth factor drugs, which you give today in practice for diabetic macroedema and diabetic retinopathy, that unfortunately, they still do worse than their colleagues who are treated in those other populations. And so these Latinos, as well as the Black patients, are at high risk of non-improvement despite our best efforts in treating these conditions from the social determinants of health, but also other factors that we can discuss later in the program. For those just tuning in, this is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Vivian Fonseca, and joining me today is Dr. Rishi Singh. We are discussing the issue of health disparities in diabetic macular edema, and strategies for addressing barriers that many patients face. So Rishi, let's talk about this. We all agree that screening is essential to pick up problems early so that they can be treated, but there are not enough eye doctors to screen every patient. So when I refer patients for screening, they get an appointment after several months and they just don't go. We've tried things like using non-midriatic fundus imaging and using telemedicine in reading centers to give us these results. And although that led to some improvement, it's still not being used enough. I'm very excited by some new technologies. I've been reading about using artificial intelligence that would patients can do this themselves and the computer would recognize whether they need further care and tell them that. Some of this can be done with smartphone-based imaging and then coupled with AI will give patients some indication of what they should do. And there's also some talk about, you know, some people who are very low risk and very stable, maybe they could have less frequent screening so that others can have the availability that would make it easier for widespread screening. So let me know your thoughts on how these things can fit in with overcoming barriers that are, are leading to a lack of adequate recognition of diabetic macular edema and retinopathy? Well, Dr. Fonseca, those are excellent points. And I'll add a sort of baseline foundational understanding for those who might be listening who don't know much about diabetic retinopathy and diabetic macular edema. Essentially, a lot of these conditions are asymptomatic. So while we might talk to patients in our offices and ask them if they have visual symptoms, the vast majority don't until it's very late in the disease state. So if you foundationally understand that, you realize that these technologies we talked about just a moment ago, AI, artificial intelligence, wide field imaging, 
office-based screening with endocrinology and primary care are really effective ways of screening these patients who are essentially sitting out there without knowing that they have a ticking time bomb going on. And so I really believe in the future of medicine, in order for us to expand our ability to evaluate these patients, especially with scarcity of resources and ophthalmology and optometry, that we're going to embrace these technologies and certainly use them. To speak on a couple of them that are really promising, you mentioned artificial intelligence. This past year actually was the first time an artificial intelligence algorithm was improved for all of medicine. Any field in medicine, one was finally approved and actually was an ophthalmology piece, which you referred to before. There's two companies making this piece now. They detect levels of diabetic retinopathy using a traditional camera, which is a non-midriatic, non-eyedrop camera. You can use this in your office and it can send an image out and have it automatically read and have a referral. And it's very reliable, highly sensitive, highly specific for these disease states. And I think we're going to see the advent of that into our practices as well. In addition, we've seen the advent of ultra-wide field imaging, which can take not the traditional 30-degree or 40-degree field of view, which is a tiny view field of view in the retina. It's like looking at Iowa in the middle of the United States and trying to figure out what's happening in California, if you want to use that analogy. This gives you an entire picture of the entire United States in one photograph. And what that allows you to do is really detect diabetic retinopathy much more reliably than if you did not have this picture alone. And those cameras are becoming, in clinical practice, very common and routine. And so we're seeing many of those patients using those images to detect now silent diabetic retinopathy they didn't know before they went for that examination. And lastly, it's worth working with interdisciplinary teams, looking at patients, caregivers, community leaders to explain the social determinants of healthcare and how we can dispel the rumors that, first of all, diabetes and diabetic eye disease is a screenable condition, but secondarily, it is a treatable condition, especially given the amount of information we have now on these antivascular endothelial growth factor agents, which can reduce the progression of the disease significantly in these patient populations. One of the drawbacks of our current therapies, as you may be aware, is that we have to deliver these essentially monthly or every two months or maybe every three months in most of our patients with diabetic eye disease. And that significant burden is to the practice, to the patient, and to the providers of this eye care. So we're looking at drugs with greater durability of action, and there's a variety being studied right now. There's drugs that are being studied as implants into the eye, which can release the drug over a very long period of time, six to 12 months. There's other drugs being established looking at the angiopoietin-2 pathway and also VEGF inhibition concurrently. Those drugs show a durability effect of up to four months potentially. And we have even high-dose drugs, drugs that are four and five times the potency of our current anti-VEGFs to see if they also will increase the durability over time. Thank you. You know, you mentioned multidisciplinary care and patient education. These are very important components of general diabetes care anyway. And we should be getting into this topic a little bit more than we traditionally have and educate patients about the lack of symptoms of eye disease early and educating people that if they did this right, they may never have to face blindness is very important. So we should be expanding on the capabilities that you've described when we educate our patients. In our last few minutes, let's make sure our listeners are really hearing us. 
What's your take-home message for our audience today? Well, Dr. Fonseca, I want to let everyone know at home that, first of all, diabetes and diabetic eye disease is commonplace and that it's important for people to understand that yearly screening is a very, very important task for any diabetic patient to undergo because the symptoms are just not there early in the disease state to prevent the long-term vision consequences. The second thing I can tell any of your audience members today is as a retina specialist, I can assure the vast majority, 90% or more of patients with diabetes, that they will not lose vision as so long as they come to see somebody like me, a retina specialist or an ophthalmologist or even an optometrist for routine eye examinations where they can be referred, evaluated, and then treated with these transformative drugs in our practices. I really want to bring a level of hope, hopefully, through this conversation to those people who are listening at home. That's really very helpful, Rishi. Let me add a take-home message myself, and that's to my colleagues who are running diabetes clinics, people in primary care, who need to keep abreast of these developments and understand there's so much more that the ophthalmologist can do for patients. And to maybe make sure that patients are screened by allowing people like you to focus on the treatment by improving the screening, improving screening rates, particularly in socioeconomically challenged patient populations, by using the technologies that are becoming available. And appropriate action can be taken very early because the results we are seeing from clinical trials with these treatments are really very good. And we also need to learn about these treatments because it needs to be incorporated within our overall plan of care with the patients and having a discussion with them. I think with good education, we should be able to get more people screened and more people treated. Well, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank our audience for listening in. And thank you, Rishi, for joining me and sharing your valuable insights. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me, Vivian. It's nice to chat with you again. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Proba Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash prova. Thank you for listening.